The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome to this day long on Dhamma for Scientists. I was wondering who would come to something like this. <laughs> so um, we're actually going to find out a little bit um, about that. How many folks here would self-identify as scientists? And how about as engineers? You can choose more than one. <laughs> okay, so still quite a number. How about other technical, like um, mathematics or medical technician? Okay, a bunch. Wow. So, and how many didn't raise their hand for any of those? A couple. That's great. So everybody here is welcome. Um, this is intended for people who are interested in the topic as it appeared on the flyer. So I'd also like to ask, though, if anybody is willing to... Um, to share why are you here (laughs) or what do you want to learn something like that okay could you take the microphone to John Um, well first of all I know what Dharma is but I'm not quite sure I know what Dhamma is okay but uh, I've long been interested in both the philosophical and the ethical issues of the relationship of science and religion, what is uh, the moral and ethical use of science, and then how does one reconcile being a scientist with uh, you know, being interested in spirituality or, or whatever. And I'm now more of a teacher of science. I'm, a, I, I'm sort of a former scientist who now teaches science. <laughs> yep. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Charles. So I came, Kim, because I was hoping you'd tell us something about your scientific background. Oh, okay. Like where you went to school and what you studied. I'm also curious how many people in the audience, you know, have like PhDs in engineering or science. Oh, okay. I think we won't ask that one quite directly yet. but We'll we'll see if people still want to identify with that. (laughs) But thank you, that's a good question. Yeah. Did you have something? Oh, you're just holding the microphone. Okay. Here's one over here. Very kind. Yeah. Thank you. So these days, um, there's been um, so exponentially growing number of um, research being done in this area of mindfulness. And they say that something as simple as just paying attention to breath uh, it has profound effects in terms of heightened level of empathy and different things. And they're slowly starting to identify what in the brain does this. So, for example, the amygdala is shrunk, and there are a lot of other things that are happening. So I'm very curious to understand more of this, because that actually strengthens my practice, and it kind of forces me to um, pay attention to attention. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious about these things. Okay, thank you. Here's one. 
Um, so I'm I'm here for two reasons. One is I was very curious to see who would show up. <laughs> so it's nice. Um, the second thing is um, I'm uh, I'm also a scientist. Uh, but you know the way you you wrote the description of this, I thought it was uh, very interesting how you kind of use the word the the fact that the scientific you know viewpoint has kind of been pervasive um, in our culture, and um, so I'm actually um, developing a model right now that uh, is kind of applying uh, merging the two to actually help. Um, more like the technical innovation and the business people be more compassionate, but through reconciling those two views. So I'm very interested in this. Okay. Here's another one. Oh, there's one. Oh. Yeah, I'm also interested in, in most of those aspects that people have mentioned. Another aspect... Uh, that hasn't been mentioned, which I'm interested in, is I found out actually that this scientifically trained mind, uh, very rational, logical, and problem-solving approach, for me, can be a major uh, hindrance in the practice, in trusting the heart, trusting the intuition, and not go, not try to fix things. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in that aspect as well. Ah. That's um, that speaks very well to some of what we'll cover today. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, just a a couple more. Yeah, here's one. So for a long time, I've been interested in uh, how the brain works, how that relates to mindfulness. Um, but I've since transitioned into another part of my career where uh, I treat patients. And so Were you, I treat patients. You treat patients. Yeah, and so a lot of the time, I'm an epileptologist, so a lot of the time there are not a whole lot of options to deal with the anxiety of a disease um, that doesn't, that's easy, that people can afford, that is tractable. And so I've sort of been off the cuff prescribing mindfulness as something to think about, not necessarily that I guide them in that process, but something that they might want to look into. And I was bolstered by this because there's a study that came out recently where they looked at outcomes um, for treating anxiety and depression with seizures using mindfulness. And a secondary outcome they didn't expect was that their seizure frequency went down. Mm. So I'm very interested from that point of view as well. Nice. Any more? There's one. Okay. I've developed an interest in cognitive neuroscience, and I think that we're at the very beginning of a real revolution to where in 20 or 50 years we'll understand almost every mental process, what's going on physically in the brain. You know, we'll understand what, what neuron firings are corresponding to everything that we now think of as a mental process. And I'm trying to get my hands around how that relates to my practice of meditation and and mindfulness. Um, I certainly don't see any conflicts or contradictions, but um, understanding the practice in the light of those things that we're going to learn is is of interest to me. Okay. Very good. All right. Jennifer, let's do that. That'd be the last one. 
I think I'm seconding the request for information about how the culture that we scientists grew up in, which is the skeptical culture, doubting everything, especially in some fields. Somebody gives a seminar and the audience is doubting every step along the way <laughs> and the hindrance of doubt um, in a, a, Dhamma, a Dhamma setting. Um, we bring up the, the word faith and um, interested in the relationship between those two. Mm. Wonderful. These are all wonderful. Um, thank you, everyone. So you get the flavor, right? Um, science is its a culture externally, and it's one that has a lot of sway in our current culture. You know, if you want what you're saying to have more weight and more authority, you should have a scientific study or you should show something rationally that's considered authoritative in our culture in ways that it hasn't been always and isn't in some other cultures. And scientific thinking is also a mindset that we have inside. You know, you learn this through practice, the internal and the external have this mirror-like quality to them. And so it's also something that we have inculcated into our system. And as was mentioned, there there are some ways in which um, this resonates very well in some ways in which it can yeah, can hinder Dharma practice. So, um, so I will say a little bit about myself sitting up here. Um, I grew up in a household that um, was fairly scientific. My father was a scientist. He's still alive, but he's retired. And I loved it, and I was not afraid of any of the language because it was spoken at the dinner table. My father was a physicist. Uh, My parents also both meditate. My um, mother didn't do it while I was growing up because of the children. But my father is a regular meditator. And I was thinking about it. I think he's now done TM, Transcendental Meditation, for almost 50 years uh, every day. And so uh, certainly he is uh, well attuned to its effects. So I, um, I have this, I got this kind of mindset also. I got the rational, skeptical, logical, analytical kind of mind and heart. Um, along with everything else, we all have all the dimensions, but some get more emphasized, right? And so I eventually trained to get a PhD in physics. And, um, but I didn't pursue a career in that by the time I had finished the PhD, I had also kind of finished that process. (laughs) And I found that with some life changes and life challenges that came up after that, I actually needed a spiritual practice in a way that I hadn't before. And I hadn't grown up with a strong, I hadn't grown up with any particular religion. Um, And so I, I found somehow through that process, I found meditation and I eventually found Gil as my teacher and I immediately love meditation, and I immediately love the Dharma, <laughs> and, and the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha, which we're going to look at today, some of them. And so I consider myself a dedicated Dharma student for the long haul. Um, I've done about two years in silent retreat total. Um, I was asked to begin teaching nine years ago and have been slowly developing as a teacher. I now sit on the Teachers' Council at Insight Santa Cruz and consider myself 
an ongoing Dharma student also. So let me say just a little bit about what this day is and maybe what is not, although I suspect everyone's questions, you'll find some way to connect with them, but let me say a little bit about my intention. There is a lot of material out there, and increasingly so, that looks at, I would say, looks at Buddhism from a scientific perspective. So these are the studies on neuroscience and looking at the brain and trying to understand consciousness, um, which are wonderful. But I thought it would be interesting to do this the other way around <laughs> and to um, take, take my seat in the Dharma perspective and consider what is it about science and the scientific mind that is seen through that perspective. So I hope you'll hang with that. This is a day of practice. We'll be doing meditation um, in addition to um, talking and conversing and so forth. And so we'll look at some of the ways in which this scientific mind is very well suited to Dharma practice. There are actually easy resonances that help scientists immediately connect with meditation, that help them understand some of what the Buddha was teaching very easily um, because of this questioning, investigative nature of the Dharma, really. Um, But in addition, uh, as was noted, there are ways in which a rational, skeptical mind is going to run into some difficulties with the Dharma because of the faith because of the eventual need to trust something beyond what cognition can really understand. And so we're going to look at that also. You know, what are the, yeah, how does the mind eventually uh, hinder itself? And there's no kind of mind that's, that's perfect for the Dharma. If you're an artist, if you're a psychotherapist, if you're a literature type, there will be other ways in which the Dharma is very easy to get into for you, and then also ways in which that kind of mind eventually <laughs> runs into, has to, is going to have to let go of something. So it's not like, you know, it's not like there's one that's better than the other. But today our focus is on the scientific, rational, analytic mind. And I hope that will be of interest. So I want to start um, just on that foundation with an understanding that we, this is a, um, a day with a culture of respect. So respect for science and respect for the Dharma, or Dhamma, for those who asked. It's the same word, uh, one in Pali and one in Sanskrit. Um, so, so with that, I want to read, and I'll, I'll thank Jim for sending this to me. I want to read a piece, a little excerpt from a piece, an essay that was published in the Journal of Cell Biology by Martin Schwartz, who's a microbiologist at the University of Virginia. And the essay is called The Importance of Stupidity in Scientific Research. And this is using the insider language of science culture, right, which uses the word stupidity in actually kind of an affectionate way. It's really not intended as an insult. And I like it because I'm choosing this deliberately, first of all, out of respect for scientific culture. And also that he uses the interesting um, Buddhist language of relative compared to absolute. Um, So here we go. I'd like to suggest that we don't do a good enough job of teaching our students how to be productively stupid. That is, if we don't feel stupid, it means we're not really trying. I'm not talking about relative stupidity in which some students achieve more than others. Science... (laughs) 
involves confronting our absolute stupidity. Focusing on important questions puts us in the awkward position of being ignorant. Scientific education might do more to ease what is a very big transition from learning what other people once discovered to making your own discoveries. The more comfortable we become with being stupid, the deeper we will wade into the unknown and the more likely we are to make big discoveries. So we begin today with our ignorance, with our absolute stupidity. And likewise in meditation, we're going forth into unknown territory. And I think it behooves us to be comfortable with not knowing in the same way that a scientist stands on their education and their training but you go into that lab not knowing what's going to be there and you know you're listening you're asking for nature to speak it might even take some courage to do that in some cases so let's let's start there on our on our journey of today so i'd like to start with a major area of confluence between science and Buddhist practice, um, which is that of investigation. So the, the idea of taking data, of observing carefully and with as little bias as possible, and the principle of seeing for ourselves rather than just trusting what others say. This is what draws a lot of people to Buddhism, actually is this non-dogmatic nature that it has. And I think it speaks particularly to science and engineering types. Is this sense that, yeah, we want you to come in and question. You know, we want you to um, find out for yourself and uh, you can ask anything. That's a, maybe a different experience than some people had with their religion growing up. But this kind of investigation, at least the kind that I think scientists and engineers understand is one that takes quite a bit bit of precision and some some effort. So there's also some understanding there. I'm going to read a story. Uh, This is abridged, um, but it's from a longer story, uh, about a student in the mid-19th century, so this was maybe 175 years ago, uh, going into the starting as a new student in a professor's lab. And he really wanted to study with this professor because he was, you know, the, the famous professor, even though he was, he was intending eventually to study entomology, but this was a professor of ichthyology, fish. And so he, this is the story of him going into this professor's lab and starting with him. So he says, I entered the laboratory of the professor and told him I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, and so forth. Then he asked, when do you wish to begin? Now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. By and by, I will ask you what you have seen. I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment, for gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen of that fish, and started in search of the professor, who had, however, left. 
Nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. On my return, I learned that the professor was still gone. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation, again looked at it. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how many teeth it had. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that this was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That is right, he said. And what is the fish like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me. He waited as if expecting more, and then with an air of disappointment. You have not looked very carefully. You haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal. Look again, look again, and he left me to my misery. I was piqued, I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish, but now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another, until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. That is next best, he said earnestly. And so for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes. Look, look, look was his repeated injunction. This was the best lesson I ever had, a lesson of inestimable value, which I could not buy, with which I cannot part. Yeah. So, I think we can understand this. And then how about in meditation? You know, in meditation, we also have an object of investigation. It's not the fish's body. It's this body (laughs) and this mind. And our experience, this being, whatever it is, sitting here, is our object of investigation. So I want to now offer the same story told by somebody else. This is from Sharon Salzberg. Sayadaw Upandita came to Barry to teach a three-month retreat when I first met him. When I began relating my meditation experience in interview, Upandita said, Never mind that. Tell me everything you notice when you put on your shoes. I hadn't really paid attention to putting on my shoes. He told me to try again. That was the end of the interview. The next day, I went into my interview, ready to report on sitting meditation, walking meditation, and my experience while putting on my shoes. Upandita said, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face. I hadn't really paid attention to washing my face. My interview was over. Every day, Upandita would ask me a different question. Soon, I was practicing mindfulness in everything I was doing. I discovered that when I stopped resisting this continuity of awareness, it opened up a deep and clear understanding of what meditation actually is.
Upandita's precision and ardency regarding meditation practice raised my efforts to a whole new level. So it's the same story, right? And I think we can understand this from our, from our practice, this sense of really looking carefully, investigating. So there was a teacher in India who's often quoted by Joseph Goldstein, um, named Munindra. He was actually the teacher of quite a number of the people who are now Western Insight teachers. And he said, very simply, if you want to know how your mind works, sit down and observe it, which is excellent advice. You know, we can do all kinds of theoretical speculation or even external studies, but if you want to know how your mind works, sit down and observe it, which is what we do. So now now let's take a look at a discourse from the Buddha. Some of you have probably heard of it. It's called the Kalama Sutta. It's useful context. There's some context around this sutta. It was, um, this teaching was given to people who were very, very skeptical. They were um, not the Buddhist followers. You know, they, were, um, they were living in a city called Kesaputta, and Kesaputta happened to be a border town. And there was a lot of trade that came through, um, and a lot of teachers came through, and they would you know, get up on their soapbox, as was the culture. I don't know if they had soapboxes, but as was the culture in ancient India, they would get up and they would you know, say what they thought was the truth, their teaching, their philosophy. And they would often say, what I'm telling you is the real one, and all those other people who come through, that's not the real thing. And so the Kalamas were um, confused about this. You know, after they'd heard several of these, they, they said, well, I don't know, who knows? Everyone says that the other guy's wrong. And so then the Buddha came through, and they said to the Buddha, listen, we've had a lot of people like you come through, and they all say that all the other people are wrong. So we're confused about this, and we're kind of doubtful and skeptical. What do you say to that? And he said, well, of course. Of course you're doubtful and skeptical and confused because these are confusing conditions that you're in when people are telling you all kinds of different things. So he basically affirmed to them that listening, just listening to other people, is not the way to attain certainty. And so he taught them, in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. Instead, when you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he says the reverse for skillful and wholesome qualities, you know, when they're uh, known to bring the lead away from suffering and to bring benefit, and when they're praised by the wise, etc., then you should enter and remain in those qualities. And so let's, let's look more carefully, because that went by quickly. Let's look more carefully at what's disallowed. <laughs> so various kinds of tradition 
are disallowed or hearsay, stuff that we're told. So you can think about this because you're sitting here listening to somebody tell you something. Um, and also I'm quoting from scripture. So, but what do we do, right? What do we do? So we'll, we'll look at this as the morning goes on. What do we consider authoritative? So those are disallowed. Um, reports, legends, conjecture. Oh, and then he says, then various kinds of logic and thinking are disallowed. <laughs> you notice, he says, um, we shouldn't do logical conjecture, inference, analogies, agreement through pondering views. So that means you've thought about it and decided that it makes sense to you. So that is also disallowed as an absolute way of knowing. Um, we can't just figure it out for ourselves, which is also maybe interesting. And so you can see how, how you feel about that. Um, and also the status of the teacher. So he says, this is probably less, less of a problem in a room like this, but there are people who just believe stuff because they, they say, well, this person is wise, this person is a great teacher, I'm going to believe them. On the other hand, you know, I didn't meet the Buddha, but from everything I've seen, um, he's a great teacher, and so I make an attempt to give some credence to what he says. So instead, we're to consider for ourselves if something is unskillful and blameworthy. And then, um, in addition, there's the last one is interesting. So it, the last little criterion, it says, if carried out, it leads to harm and suffering. So we need to know for ourselves if something, if we put it into practice, is this actually going to work or not? Because we know how nice it is when things are theoretically true, and then you try to actually build it or make it work, and it doesn't actually work, right? So... Or you learn a lot more trying to make it actually, you know, actually put it into practice and make something that was theoretical uh, manifest in the world. You learn a lot more science and engineering than you do necessarily just from modeling, for example. So there's all these different components. Um, and then finally, it's important to point out that there is this other criteria. These qualities are criticized by the wise and the reverse for the skillful ones. These qualities are praised by the wise. So there is a check. It's actually not just entirely what we think about. There's a culture around it of um, finding somebody who's wise and seeing if that matches. So we can consider you know, how we feel about all that. But it's generally true that um, we need to check. So we're checking basically our own ignorance. You know, If we have that absolute ignorance that where we're you know we're not quite knowing everything actually ignorance has a slightly different meaning in buddhism but we still need to check against our possibly imperfect understanding which makes sense when i first started practice i felt like i was in an uh, irresolvable dilemma because i was practicing because i wasn't wise i knew that at least it's wise enough to know that but I felt like if I'm not wise, how am I going to be able to choose the right teacher and choose the right practice and do it correctly? That's the point. I'm not wise. And so I thought this is probably a um, you know, completely unsolvable paradox. But it turns out that it's solvable um, by kind of stepwise approach. You know, all you have to be wise enough is to do the next step. And then that gives you a better perspective, and then you become wise enough to do the next step, which you couldn't have done two steps back. And so it works. It kind of uh, bootstraps. But this little check of um, 
criticized or praised by the wise is meant to uh, help us in that way. And then um, there are various other suttas that give indication about how to decide if somebody else is wise, because then you can say, well, how do I know if someone's wise? And there turns out there are other discourses that talk about here the criteria by which you can decide if somebody else is wise. And so, you know, by kind of, they didn't have the internet at that time, but kind of following the links through the uh, suttas, you can find out a lot. They're, They're linked together very nicely. So, in summary, we need to see for ourselves, especially in practice, but it's not totally us. We still need an outside check. That's what wisdom is about. So, with these things that you know, this sort of introduction that we've covered so far, let's um, let's meditate. Yeah. So find a let's find a posture that's comfortable. Closing your eyes and drawing the attention inward. Just feeling your body from the inside. You may begin by noticing the place where you're sitting, so your seat against the chair or the cushion, your legs or feet against the floor. Just sense the stability of where you're sitting. If you want, you can kind of rock back and forth or otherwise settle to make sure that you're in a balanced posture. So we begin by noticing the sensations of the breath. First, we just connect with that. Can you feel the breath somewhere in the body? Centering the mind down so that you can see that. You may notice the touch of the air against the nostrils or the upper lip. Feeling of it moving through the nasal passages or down the throat. Maybe into the chest or the belly. bring the attitude of observing, of looking in a neutral and non-judgmental way. And we begin perhaps to see that the, the breath is a series of sensations
if we keep settling the mind into the experience of breathing, we may begin to see a little bit more about this series or cascade of sensations. When it first touches the nostrils, there's a little bit of coolness, usually. And then the sensation in the nasal passages can sometimes be almost like tingling, a little bit of pressure. As the body responds to the breath coming in, there can be a little shift of the clothing against the skin. So there's a feeling also on the surface of the body. And as the breath fills the lungs... There's rising tension. And the tension increases. And at some point it stops. No more breath coming in. And there might be a a little gap or there might not. And then there's that very beginning of the outbreath. <coughs> Sense of relaxation. <coughs> also a sense of movement through the throat or the nasal passages, but it's different. It's going in the other direction. Often the breath is warmer on the way out. There's more and more of a feeling of ease as the muscles relax. We may notice overall whether the in-breath is 
on the long side or on the short side, whether the out-breath is on the long side or on the short side, they may not match, actually. And we're just observing, there's no right way to breathe. And continuing to observe the breath, which is recognizably similar and yet different every time. We could begin to pay attention with some continuity. So seeing if we can observe an entire cycle from that very touch of the beginning of the in-breath where you know it's just started and then rising through the differing sensations cascading through the chest area, but maybe even to other parts of the body. All the way until the end of the in-breath and that point when it stops and then catching the very beginning of the out-breath. Following that all the way through the relaxation The sensations at the end of the out-breath get very, very subtle. That's where the mind often drifts off. But we can see if we can watch all the way through those to that moment when it ends.
And then notice while we wait for the next in-breath to start, catch that first moment.
there's more and more to see in the breath. Like the fish, we're not done after 10 minutes. Maybe there are subtle, vibrating sensations. in some part of the body associated with the breath energy. Or maybe the breath has changed since you started. It was long and now it's short, or it was short and now it's long. To add an additional instruction used in Buddhist breath meditation, as you continue to observe the in and out flow of the breath, we can add the intention to bring some ease to the body. So, for example, an easy way to do that is on the out breath just open to that relaxation that's happening anyway and allow it to soften the shoulders, to soften the face, to soften the belly. To soften the legs. The breath is a dynamic entity that interacts with the body. And so we intend to bring some tranquility. can see how the breath interacts with little spots of tension that we find in the shoulders or the back of the neck or the low back. Like observing a fluid flowing through a region with some blockages.
can be supportive in doing this meditation to deliberately relax the eyes in the eye sockets. The idea of looking. And sometimes we actually try to look with the eyes. It's not needed, of course. You're using an internal sense, but see if you can release the eyes and the eye sockets. It's also helpful to even relax inside the skull. So we often use our brain to be with things, to look at things, consider things. So if we imagine something like a thinking muscle inside the brain, say right behind the eyes, Seeing if we can just relax that. We don't need to think about the breath. We have it right here in front of us. So just relaxing and letting the body breathe. The body knows how to breathe. It's a gentle touch of staying with and observing, but in a light touch kind of way.
diligently receptive. So, having had some experience, you may drop in the question, how do you know you're breathing?
Okay, so just so you know what's coming, we're going to do a period of um, walking meditation in a few minutes, so you'll get a chance to move your body. But before that, I thought I would ask if anybody discovered anything new about their breath. Or anything else in that process, that particular meditation, which was very much about cultivating an observer and being willing to keep looking. Yeah, why don't you wait for the microphone? There's. So in um, quantum mechanics, when you observe something, whatever it is you observe, becomes not what it was before you observed it. That's correct. Did Buddhism say anything about that? It does. That's the topic for this afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, observing has an effect on the system. Okay. And yeah. There's next to you. I really liked how you started and guided that meditation in kind of like that I know I know everybody is telling you observe your breath you know I've been hearing this for a while but I felt there was one more quality that I don't know if it's because of the stories you shared before but it really was investigative and then it kind of moved to the experiential and um, I thought that was very powerful. I I did feel something that um, I hadn't felt before. Um, at the end of the in breath and the beginning of the out breath, um, there was a feeling of dying and then rebirth that I hadn't felt before. Like it feels like. Oh, that's how I feel when I'm suffocating and I'm, I've had panic attacks in the past. Do you uh, mean the end of the out-breath and the beginning of the in-breath? Yes, yeah. yes. And that was fascinating because I, I, I had heard cognitively about that kind of, you know, constant rebirth in every moment. Mm. But to really feel it, um, that was very interesting. And... Uh, also, when you ask the question, you drop the question at the end about how do you know you're breathing. Uh, first, my kind of, you know, scientific mind was like, what kind of, what kind of question is this? I'm, I'm alive, so I'm breathing. <laughs> I know that I'm that's breathing because I'm alive, answer, otherwise I'd be yeah. dead. <laughs> so that's a conceptual answer. Yes, and I realized, yeah. oh, this is a very cognitive, you know, conceptual response. So I tried to, like, look deeper. And so then it was really the sensation. It was like, okay. So that was really wonderful. Thank you. Oh, good. I like that you've pointed out that there's, there are actually emotions associated with the breath. Um, and, of course, they were coming up because of memory, but what moment don't we have memory coming in? Perception is a function that uses memory, and perception is present in every moment of experience. Um, so we're going to investigate, actually, in the next segment after the walking meditation, we're going to look a little bit at the interplay that, um, that emotions and the heart bring into our practice, which are kind of formally ignored in science, but very, very present nonetheless. So thank you. There's one over here. 
So there were two interesting points. One, what this gentleman said, and on emotions. So um, what you said is the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And I struggled with this for a full year. When I would um, start observing my breath, I would start controlling it. Yes, One, people find two. this. Yes, yeah. it's a common problem, apparently. Everybody goes through that. Then I learned something from Gill, is um, um, when you squeeze your body, it's like squeezing toothpaste, and what comes out is thoughts. So your emotions is yeah. something that you need to first control. So you get into this deep state of calm, and then I'm able to automatically just observe my breath. It's just like a sine wave going. Mm -hmm. um, and I often find that to get to that state, um, I need a little energy. So today I'm still recovering from the sleep deprivation of the week. Uh -huh. So I'm a little low a little in energy, low, so I'm yeah. not able to do that. So I think I need to pop in a guarna seed or something to boost up my energy. So there's some fine-tuning involved. But um, it'll be great to hear from you on all these subtle details because it helps a lot. Ultimately, what we need is to get to this calm state. Gil talks about mindfulness and meditation in his simile of Mara. So each reinforces the other. So mindfulness helps you get into the state of deep relaxation, which is meditation, and that also enforces that you're mindful of what you're doing. That's true. I can't, it's hard to imagine having mindfulness without concentration or concentration without mindfulness. They have to grow together. Um, I appreciate what you said about the calmness because that is the purpose of the instruction on relaxing. Remember partway through I said it's, helpful to actually have the intention to relax the body through the breath and that's intended to induce calm um, at the physical level and it's very very supportive for continuing the process of being able to see more deeply which is the purpose of meditation is to get to the point where we can see what if you want to know how your mind works sit down and observe it and you quickly discover that if your mind is going everywhere you're not really able to observe. So what do we do? We have to calm it. So that's what these practices are designed to do. So thank you. We'll have much more of this as the day unfolds. Was there one up here? Yeah. Oh, and then also Nana. I saw Jennifer first. Thank you. So you asked about um, new discoveries about the breath. Um, f for me today, it felt like... Um, the, the sensations are not very, never been very strong here for me, or I haven't noticed them um, very well. So I go to the belly mm -hmm. normally, um, but then I had the question: Well, what is the breath? Is it the air that comes in? <laughs> and so then I thought: Well, I am the perception, the ex um, sensations of the air going past my nostrils is one way to conceptualize the breath. So I was able to pay more attention to that um, and actually did find the energy came up by, uh, gradually came up through that session. So that was, that was very lovely. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah, energy comes up through a lot of ways. One of them is interest. <laughs> so if you're actually interested in what you're observing, there will be more energy. Nina. In terms of what I've noticed that's different from the breath today, um, the, somehow the image of a nose at, at the lower belly came to me. Mm -hmm. Just okay. um, 
And then I, I noticed that that image allowed me to really expand the breath, and the breath came deep into the belly, which is new. I really, sort of the lower belly is a place where I tend to focus, but I lose attention because the sensations are so subtle. They're a big, I, I, then I start to get quite sleepy. Right. So um, I notice very deep the breath really going down, down. And um, then I started to sort of get quite relaxed. And so in order to feel the desire to continue to have that awareness, then I stood up. And then it just, the image of the nose went away, and then I, it's just breathing from the inside. So the attention went to just mm-hmm. breathing from the inside out. And that was very interesting to see, because the breath was just as deep. Well, that right? is how we breathe, actually, is that it happens because the diaphragm uh, pulls downward and actually just and pulls the air into mm-hmm. the lungs. It creates essentially a little vacuum, and so there's more pressure outside than in, it comes in. So we do breathe from the inside. Yeah, my <laughs> awareness is always from the outside. So the sensations at the, at the skin and the outside, yeah. right? So, and oh, so this you found time, the internal sensations. Yeah, yeah, this time it went from the outside, from the outside going outward and going inward, mm-hmm. all from the inside. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Great. These are great. There's no right answer, by the way. No one thing that you should have seen or not seen. And if you fell asleep, that's fine also. It means you did very well on the relaxation part. Um, so we'll, we'll do a little walking meditation now. And um, what I'd like to suggest for it is to have, again, this observer stance. And so you've observed that your body breathes, and you can watch that happening. Um, in the same way, your body actually knows how to walk. It's a little more complex because there's some, some more direction involved. Um, but as you're walking, just see if we can watch our body walking. Walking meditation is very natural. Um, I can give you instructions if you've never done it. You can just come up after this and I'll offer that. But if you've done it before, it's fine. Um, and so see if you can cultivate a very relaxed, don't get so focused on, I have to see my feet or whatever, but just can you watch your body walking as if your body is taking you for a walk instead of you walking. And if you want a little project to work on during this time, you could ask yourself, like if your eyes were closed while you were walking, how do you know that your leg is swinging through the air? You know, that step, lifting, moving, placing. How do you know that you're on the moving step? It's kind of interesting. (laughs) 